text for this morning's sermon is 1 Samuel 31, if you want to turn there. 1 Samuel chapter 31, 1 through 13. This is God's word. Now the Philistines were fighting against Israel, and the men of Israel fled before the Philistines and fell slain on Mount Gilboa. And the Philistines overtook Saul and his sons. And the Philistines struck down Jonathan and Abinadab and Malkishua, the sons of Saul. The battle pressed hard against Saul, and the archers found him, and he was badly wounded by the archers. Then Saul said to his armor-bearer, Draw your sword and thrust me through with it, lest these uncircumcised come and thrust me through and mistreat me. But his armor-bearer would not, for he feared greatly. Therefore Saul took his own sword and fell upon it. And when his armor-bearer saw that Saul was dead, he also fell upon his sword and died with him. Thus Saul died, and his three sons, and his armor-bearer, and all his men, on the same day together. And when the men of Israel, who were on the other side of the valley, and those beyond the Jordan, saw that the men of Israel had fled, and that Saul and his sons were dead, they abandoned their cities and fled, and the Philistines came and lived in them. The next day, when the Philistines came to strip the slain, they found Saul and his three sons fallen on Mount Geboa. So they cut off his head and stripped off his armor and sent messengers throughout the land of the Philistines to carry the good news to the house of their idols and to the people. They put his armor in the temple of Ashtaroth, and they fastened his body to the wall of Bashan. But when the inhabitants of Jebesh-Gilead heard what the Philistines had done to Saul, all the valiant men arose and went all night and took the body of Saul and the bodies of his sons from the wall of Bethshan. And they came to Jabesh and burned them there. And they took their bones and buried them under the tamarisk tree in Jabesh and fasted seven days. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Uh, Father, uh, God, I ask that you would... uh, Help us see you in this text. Lord, I pray that you would use this text to humble us. Father, we would see your great mercy that you've given us in your word. Uh, Lord, I pray that this wouldn't just be a nice thing to hear, but that it would change us, that it would go from our heads into our hearts and that you would cause faith to rise uh, according to your word, Lord. I just pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. A word that you're going to hear often throughout this sermon is the word pragmatism. Uh, It's a word that could be viewed in a positive way or a negative way. Uh, Here's what the Webster's Dictionary says about pragmatism. Dealing with things sensibly and realistically in a way that is based on practical rather than theoretical considerations. Pragmatism looks at reality and does the very thing that seems practical to do in the moment. And I say it could be good or bad because pragmatism can be good for a Christian to practice, 
where God has not spoken or His principles do not, do not direct. We're called to be wise in a sense to have common sense. But there's a way that we're tempted to function this way in a bad way when God is clearly spoken and in that Word we see something lacking so that we need to go a different way that seems to make more sense. Let me give you an example. Uh, A few years back, I was uh, doing premarital counseling with uh, some family friends, uh, their children that live out of town. No one here knows them. And uh, I said I would meet with them. They wanted to know if I would do their wedding. And I said, I don't know, I would need to at least go through one session and kind of understand the circumstances. And, and as I met with this couple, I knew there was basically two things I need to know. Are they both Christians? Uh, confessing to follow Christ with their mouth? And are they willing to live that way with their lives uh, going forward? You see, if, if you ask anyone if they're a Christian, most people, a lot of people will say, of course, but we'd be foolish to just take people at their word. And this is where it gets real practical. And one of the most difficult circumstances a pastor will ever be in is in these sessions because it's where rubber meets the road. And this particular couple had had a two-year-old together. Uh, they'd been living together for several years and uh, they wanted to get married. And as I met with them, uh, it seemed that one of them seemed to be a Christian, and the other one, I don't think was, but was really interested in the gospel. So we spent this first session going through the gospel, and uh, the one who seemed to be hanging on every word, uh, who I don't think was a believer, was following, and I'm just thinking, this would be amazing that if this person would be saved uh, through the gospel here. And we got to the end of it, and this person said, yes, I want Christ. And I was, in a sense, praising God, and I said, well, I'm glad. Now let me tell you what Christ says about your relationship. What Christ says about marriage. You see, the invitations had already been sent out. Uh, In two months, the wedding was going to happen. And I said, Christ wants you to not to live together for the next two months into the wedding. Fornication is a sin. To follow Christ is to follow His Word. And to not be intimate until you're married. And at this point, this was kind of received like, what? Are you kidding me? Here's the response. And this is more from the one. 
I sense the other kind of like this idea. Yes, I believe in Christ, but our two-year-old, can you imagine how tragic it would be for two years, the mom and dad are present in the home, and now for two months, mom or dad is gone? Do you realize how tragic this would be for this child? Seems pretty practical. Seems to make common sense, reasonable argument. In fact, what I'm asking, let's just admit, sounds more unreasonable, doesn't it? At least from a worldly perspective, it does. What about the money? I mean, it's tough enough. We're in the last two months of planning and you want us to figure out all of a sudden how we're going to live separately? What about the cost of this? It just seems so unreasonable. And at that point, I tried to help them see that following God is following God when He speaks words that seem reasonable to you and when He speaks words that seem unreasonable to you. That's what it means to trust God's Word and not be pragmatic. To go with God's Word when God speaks. So... um, they, in a sense, had to find a more reasonable pastor to marry them. And I can just just tell you, that's not a fun spot to be. If you want to follow God's Word, your friends and your family might give you eye rolls at how unreasonable it is to follow what God seems to have clearly spoken. Now I say that not to make them look bad and myself look good, because what about speeding? Let's let's bring up, let's point the arrow back at me. According to Romans 13, God has ordained the governments, the governing authorities that we have. And to break a law that isn't asking us to break God's law, like speeding. Well, that, well, that's unreasonable. You know, it's pretty easy to be pragmatic when no one will pull you over for five miles over, so the actual speed limit is five miles over the speed limit, right? You see, I, trust me, I can lay out reasonable arguments reasonable things that most people will agree to. You and I struggle with the type of pragmatism which is sinful, just like Saul struggled with pragmatism throughout his whole life. And hopefully by the grace of God, He is changing us into Christ's image. So, What can we learn from this text? If someone were to ask you, is this a good chapter? Or is this a 
chapter of pure sadness. I first had this message titled, Why the Sad Ending? Before I really sifted through this text, I felt like I had to change it. Yes, there's sadness here, but there's also glory in this chapter. And I want to show it to you. I'm going to, I want to ask you today to live by faith according to God's Word. To live by faith according to God's Word, not according to what you think is reasonable. And the first point I want to point out is this. I want to ask you to die faithfully. To die faithfully. And points two or three are going to help us understand how, but let me show you this in the text. Look at verses 1 and 2. Now the Philistines were fighting against Israel, and the men of Israel fled before the Philistines and fell slain on Mount Gilboa. And the Philistines overtook Saul and his sons, and the Philistines struck down Jonathan and Abinadab and Malchishua, the sons of Saul. So, if there's one place in here where your heart feels a gets struck, it's at the death of Jonathan. Jonathan's role in David's life, Jonathan's faithfulness, helping David, taking David's hand, putting it in the Lord's hand at David's biggest struggles. Jonathan giving up the kingship, which is rightfully his, it should be passed down from father to son, but coming to David and say, you take my clothing. You take the kingship. It's yours. God has it for you. What an unreasonable person Jonathan is in the eyes of the world. We would think of Jonathan as absolutely crazy. But here, you have Jonathan, who's been faithful to God, to trust in His Word. And we would kind of expect Jonathan to ditch his dad and be hanging out with David. But Jonathan encourages David and is fighting right alongside his dad, fighting for Israel. There's two deaths that stand out here in this text that I want us to consider. Gilboa is a place of death for both of them. But for one, it represents, for Jonathan, it represents a life lived faithfully according to God's will. Both of them get killed by the Philistine army. One of them dies faithful. And when I say that, I mean two things. One, trusting by faith in God. And secondly, accepting God's will for his life. This unreasonable will, so it seems from the eyes of the world, in comparison to his father, who seems to be 
the epitome of pragmatism. We'll look at this more in, in the second point. But to know that you and I are going to have our Mount Gilboa. Jonathan had it. Saul had it. Your death, unless Christ returns, your Mount Gilboa is coming. Will you be there having been trusting in God? And will you be trusting in God? Or will you up to your very last moments of life scrambling to figure out what your next move is? I just beg you to consider and admit that your Mount Gilboa is coming. You see, we tend to read this and say, what a horrible chapter. Ooh. Is it really worse having four arrows stuck in you and then being thrust through in a moment than dying of cancer slowly? You see, we all are going to pass on. And my prayer is for my life and for your life that you'll be people who have put your hope in God. That you would die faithfully. Just think for a minute of Jesus. Jesus was faithful to His Father's... Doesn't it seem unreasonable what Jesus was asked to do? Jesus, the second person in the Trinity, has all the glory, so much we can't, the greatest angel in heaven can't even look upon him. And we're told that Jesus didn't hang on to this, grasp onto it, and rip it down to earth with him, but he let go of that, left that in heaven, and came down and he humbled himself. The one who's the most glorious became the most humble. Does that seem unreasonable? Became a servant. Didn't come to be served, but to serve. And to give His life as a ransom for many. To even die a death on the cross. To come live this very unpragmatic life in the eyes of the world, but to be faithful to His own Father so that Eternity can be secured so that His kingdom can be secured forever. So die faithfully in the Lord's will by trusting His Word. And that brings us to point two. So how will I get to that point to trust in God's infallible Word? Look at verse 3. The battle pressed hard against Saul. The archers found him, and he was badly wounded by the archers. So let's just not read these as words. These are real people, real circumstances. It wouldn't be good being found by the archers and being badly wounded. Then Saul said to his armor bearer, draw your sword, thrust me through with it, lest these uncircumcised come and thrust me through and mistreat me. But his armor-bearer would not. He feared greatly, for Saul took his own sword, 
are for he feared greatly. Therefore, Saul took his own sword and fell upon it. And when his armor bearer saw Saul that was dead, he fell upon his sword and died with him. Thus Saul died and his three sons and his armor bearer and all his men on the same day together. So how does this tell us to trust God's infallible Word? Well, first is this. This isn't a surprise, is it? Is, are we surprised at all that Saul died on this day and that his sons would die with him? Remember back in chapter 28 when Saul had the witch at Endor raise up Samuel? What was Samuel's word to him? Moreover, the Lord will give Israel also with you into the hands of the Philistines. Tomorrow you and your son shall be with me. And the Lord will give the army of Israel into the hands of the Philistines. God's Word will stand. If He says it, it will happen. You can trust His Word. It's infallible. If He says it's going to happen, it's going to happen. Remember way back at the beginning of 1 Samuel when Samuel prophesied to Eli that because of their unfaithfulness and lack of fear of God and trusting in God's Word that his sons would both die on the same day and sure enough, it happened just as the Lord had spoken. And when God told Saul that because he did not trust his word, the kingdom would be taken from him and be given to a servant more acceptable than him, this day was destined to come. The Lord said it would happen. If I were to sum up Saul's life, here's the second part. I want us to think about trust God's word because it comes true. It's worthy of your trust. But second, how did Saul get to this point? And you just have to say, when you're falling on your sword at the end of your life, it is like this is such a horrible picture. How did we, how did he get here? How would we sum up this? moment that brought him here. Here's how I would sum up his life. Saul's life was tragic because at the moment of opportunity to walk by faith in God's Word, every time Saul came to this point where things didn't go just right, it's the moment of where he would need to walk by faith. In that moment, Every time it seems like he becomes a pragmatist and begins to trust in his own wisdom and his own plans. Whether he's, things are getting bad and he's counting soldiers and he's seeing how many Philistines there are, he's seeing how many he has. Things start getting rough and rather than first inclination go to God, he goes to his own planning. Or whether Samuel's not showing up. I know I'm not supposed to go into war unless Samuel comes and offers sacrifices, but he's not coming. 
and look at all the Philistines so it just makes sense. I'm going to offer up the sacrifice over and over again. Or how about when God told them to strike down the Amalekites and, and the people are saying, why will we destroy the cattle? Well, God said to destroy man, woman, child, and cattle. Well, let's, let's keep the cattle. That seems like a waste. That seems unreasonable. And plus, we can sacrifice some of them to Yahweh. He goes pragmatic over and over and over again. It's not that Saul didn't have victories. He did. God gave him power to defeat Israel's enemies through much of his life. And when God's Word seemed reasonable, he loved God's Word. And when God's Word seemed to be contrary to what would make sense to him, he went his own way. You see, the point of the king of Israel is that the king is serving the God of Israel. And the way God leads the king of Israel is through the prophet, through the one who speaks his word and tells the king what to do. But how did we get Saul in the first place? Israel's looking around. What is that nation doing? What is that nation doing? We don't have a king. We want a king like the nations. Give us a king like the nations. They got a king like the nations. He's a pragmatist. He represents the people that wanted him. He did not trust in God's word when trust or faith became difficult. God's Word was good to him, but it was not ultimate to him. Let me ask you a question. At what point are you going to commit suicide? If you're fatally wounded, are you going to fall on your own sword? See, I think even in his death, how can I make this not quite as bad as it looks like it's going to be? He's still scheming to figure out a better way to even die. It's just like all throughout his life, we see this. Trust his word. You see, what if he would have listened to Lamentations 3, 24 and 25? It's the opposite of Saul. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in Him. The Lord is good to those who wait for Him, to the soul who seeks Him. See, Saul could never wait. It always seemed like the Lord was going to let him down. He couldn't hope. A few verses later in Lamentations 3, in verse 37, He speaks about God's Word. Who has spoken and it came to pass unless the Lord has commanded it? Is it not from the mouth of the Most High that good and bad come? What it means to be God is that when He speaks, it happens, whether good or bad. You can submit yourself to a God who is sovereign 
over the world. But if you can't trust that God, then you have to scheme to make it happen. We pray by the grace of God that God will keep us from pragmatism at Sovereign Grace. There might be a thousand ways it might seem to make our church grow better, but we believe the church of Jesus Christ grows in the most unpragmatic way. You teach God's Word, which seems like foolishness to the world, and you you don't believe coolness is going to bring them in, but you believe that According to God's Word, the Holy Spirit works to change people, to bring about a new birth. And so you could call us, what I tell people is we're simple and we're not sexy at all. We don't seek to be a sexy church, a church that attracts from the outside. But what we do want to do is be faithful to God's Word and watch God's plan. Which is amazing. The only thing you could point to is God is going to do it. If there's any success, you can't look back at Scott or me or David or how great we are at greeting people when they come. And you, you won't be able to look at all that but to say, God is building His church. You want to know when the church grows? in Acts. It isn't after some scheme. It's when Ananias and Sapphira are struck dead for lying to God. I remember John MacArthur saying, uh, you know, we look at the strat church, church growth strategies. This isn't a good one. If two people lie, ask God to come and kill them. But the amazing thing is right after that story, when Ananias and Sapphira lie to the Holy Spirit, they're struck dead. The very next verse is God added to their number daily. Multitudes came in. That doesn't make any sense, but that's how God works. Trust in God's Word. Jesus, what does He say? Matthew 4, 4, in the temp when Satan comes to Him to tempt Him. Jesus answered, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. See, we just think Jesus is being cute. Oh, turn the bread after his 40-day fast. Oh, just make the stones bread and eat right now. And so Jesus thinks, oh, how can I make it a really cliche or like a catchy response? Man shouldn't live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Yes, it's interesting. It both they both have to do with bread, but does Jesus mean it? Does man live by every word that comes from the mouth of God? Is that more valuable than food? Is this how man survives? That doesn't seem very practical, does it? Seems like there's a million things more practical than living by every word that comes from the mouth of God, but Jesus believed it. Jesus believed this is true. Paul believed it. Here's what Paul wrote to Timothy in 2 Timothy 3.10. You, however, have followed my teaching and my conduct and my aim of life, my faith, 
my patience, my love, my steadfastness, my persecutions and sufferings that happened to me at Antioch and Iconium and at Lystra, which persecutions I endured. Yet from them all, the Lord has rescued me. He says, Timothy, you followed me in all these things. And they were even persecutions, but we waited and the Lord rescued us. And then he says this, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, while evil people and imposters will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. But as for you, so how do you live in a world where it's getting more evil all around you, persecution's coming, what does Paul tell Timothy? Here's what he says. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it and how from childhood you've been acquainted with the sacred writings. You see this picture? What do you do when you live in a world that's getting worse and worse and it's so bad? Continue in what you have learned. Continue in the sacred writings in which you had believed. And then he says this, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. Most practical thing in the world. Your Gilboa's coming, mine is coming. And Paul's saying, Timothy, yours is coming. So live according to the sacred Scriptures which will take you straight to Jesus Christ that will make your Gilboa not your demise, but your entrance into eternal glory. It makes sense. It makes sense. And then he says this, all Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete and equipped for every good work. Do you believe God's Word is what you need for life and godliness? Jesus believed it. Paul believed it. And we obviously ought to believe it. God did not raise up Saul that the people of Israel would trust in Saul, but that Israel would know that it is Yahweh who saves. To trust in God's Word is to trust God. Right? Right back to the young couple I'm counseling. To trust in God's Word is to trust God. But get this. To trust in God's Word is to trust God so that God may be glorified. To trust in your own plans is to trust yourself so that you will be glorified. The only result of pragmatism where God has clearly spoken is that we get the glory. God's Word said this. That seemed unreasonable. I'm going to do this. If there's success over here, who gets the glory? God doesn't. We do. You see, it's not just bad to be pragmatic and not trust God's Word because it's a sin. 
It's that we self-defect at the very core of why we're created, to glorify God. That's the very heart of sin, is that we would glorify ourselves, worship the creature rather than the Creator. So, this brings us into our third point, hallowed or hallow His name. How do we see this in this text? It's amazing. It actually, it sounds like it ends gory, but it ends with God being hallowed. You're saying, where is that? Well, it's hard for us as Americans to see it because we swim in pragmatism. Let me show it to you. I felt it when I read it. I, 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 I totally feel this. Look at verse 7. When the men of Israel were on the other side of the valley and those beyond the Jordan saw the men of Israel had fled and that Saul and his sons were dead, they abandoned their cities and fled and the Philistines came and lived in them. The next day, now this is shocking, the next day when the Philistines came to strip the slain, they found Saul and his three sons fallen on Mount Gilboa. So they're coming to get their clothing and then they do this horrible thing that defames Yahweh. So they cut off his head, stripped off his armor, sent messengers throughout the land of the Philistines to carry the good news to the house of their idols and to the people. They put his armor in the temple of Ashtaroth and they fastened his body to the wall of Bashan. But, so you get what's happening. The Philistines are worship their pagan idols and they say, Yahweh, this is Yahweh's king? <laughs> okay, let's take his armor. We'll hang it up in honor to our gods. And we'll take his, cut off his head, hang his head up, hang his body on a wall so that these idols will be proven to be better than Yahweh himself. It's a way for them to say, our gods are better than Israel's God. But when the inhabitants of Jabesh Gilead heard what the Philistines had done to Saul, look at verse 12, all the valiant men arose and went all night and took the body of Saul and the bodies of his sons from the wall of Bashan. They risked their lives there. And they came to Jabesh and burned them there. And they took their bones and buried them under the tamarisk tree in Jabesh and fasted seven days. You know what I thought the first time I read that? Stupid Jabesh Gileans. What are they doing? It's just a body. They're already dead. What's the big deal? Why would you go risk your life to steal the armor? There's, no, there's nothing special in the armor. There's nothing special in the body. They're already dead. Their spirits are gone. They're in Sheol. Why would they do this? See, this is how we think as Americans when we read this, isn't it? We most naturally think, well, that, what, you know, what is going on here? But what did these men see? They saw 
that Yahweh was being defamed. And that they thought their gods were more powerful. Remember what drove David to go slay Goliath? Is he mocking Yahweh? Is he, are, are these Philistines mocking Yahweh? Oh, I'm going and God is going to have victory. God's name is going to be hallowed. That doesn't seem very practical to us. That doesn't seem very pragmatic to us. And yet, it is so practical. Think, think of those in Jabesh Gilead. What had Saul done for them way back in chapter 11? Do you remember? The Ammonites were going to attack them and kill them, and the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon Saul, and Saul saved them and destroyed the Ammonites. I think these men remembered the salvation through Saul, God's salvation through Saul, and they were not going to let God be defamed like this. They were grateful. The first step of hallowing God's name is to remember the grace of God. Why does Jesus start his the Lord's Prayer like this when, when they're asked how to pray? Pray like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. The very first thing in the prayer, the very most important thing is that God be holy, that God be set apart, that God be honored. That'll make your life look really weird in the eyes of the world if that is your heart. Because that might mean you put yourself in situations where maybe even your own parents are going, I don't know what you're doing. This is crazy. Well, doesn't God deserve the glory here? Doesn't God, shouldn't His name be hallowed? And then it's interesting, if you just look at the rest of that prayer, we're not, we don't have time to go through it all, but here's, here's how it goes. Hallowed be Your name, your kingdom come, your will be done. You, you, you. You be glorified. Your kingdom come, your will be done. You want to know when the prayer turns inward? Here's what it, here's how it turns. Good way to remember this is the three F's. Know that you're in need of food, that you're in need of forgiveness, and you're in need of fighting power. When it turns in on us, you know what that prayer represents? We're totally needy. We need our daily bread. has to come from your hand. can't come from anyone else. You're our Savior. You're our hope. We need it from God. Forgiveness. Forgive us this day. That, that tells us I'm in need. I'm a sinner. Deliver us from evil. We, we need the power of God to be saved from evil. The whole prayer is about God's name being hallowed. Man being brought down to the point of, I can't do it. I need God. And we don't have time to go through it, but if you were to go look at Hannah's prayer way back at the very beginning of 1 Samuel, this prayer just talks about the weak becoming strong, the hungry becoming full, the barren bearing children, the poor becoming rich, the needy being raised up from poor to, a, to princes. It's this beautiful 
song, this beautiful prayer that Hannah has where those who trust in their own strength are going to be brought down, but the needy, the poor, those who know they cannot do it but trust in God's Word, God will raise them up. And the end of that prayer ends like this. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He'll give strength to His King and the horn and exalt the horn of His anointed. Well, here's what you need to know today is that the Lord will judge our lives. And that's a heavy thing for us as sinners. Really, there's no hope. But the hope is in the fact that there is a promise there that God is going to exalt the King. And that King is going to let go of this glory He could have kept for Himself. He became a servant. He went to a cross. He bore your sin. He bore my sin. If you'll trust in Him, when He's on the cross, the very wrath of God, the hell you deserved, got poured out on Him. So that you can be found not guilty. So you can be found faithful. So that you can be found righteous. You see, you and I can't become righteous. We can't ever become good enough. We need a gift of righteousness. And Jesus lived for 33 years to build up a perfect life to gift to us when we trust by Him in faith. Do you believe God's Word? That's what God's Word says to us. God's Word says our Gilboa's coming. God will judge but I will send a king. You see, we're on the other side of Christ and we can forget what great news it is that there's a way for us to be able to go to our death with confidence that our lives will be secured because God's Word has never been broken. Father, my prayer is You will create this faith in us Lord, I pray You'll convict us of areas of our life that we know of that we're living contrary to Your spoken Word. Lord, that we would follow Your Word not because we're legalists, but that we find no hope in and of ourselves. Father, I pray You would show us the stupidity of our plans in how Dumb it is to exchange Your glory for a lie. Lord, I pray that You would save even here this morning that as Your Word points us to Christ, points us to Your King, to our hope, Lord, Father, I pray that even right now, a heart that's been restless, that's been fearful, might cling by faith to Your Word and be saved. Lord, I pray You would help us. That You would sustain us. That You would help us be patient. That we would wait when it seems difficult to wait. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.